Peter Spurgeon. A Charles Spurgeon podcast. The Superlative Excellence of the Holy Spirit. Sermon number 574. Delivered on Sunday morning, June 12, 1864, by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John chapter 16, verse 7. The saints of God may very rightly count their losses among their greatest gains. The adversities of believers minister much to their prosperity. And although we know this, yet through the weakness of the flesh, we tremble at soul-enriching afflictions and dread to see those black ships which bring us such freights of golden treasure. When the Holy Spirit sanctifies the furnace, the flame refines our gold and consumes our dross, yet the dull ore of our nature does not like the glowing coals and would rather lie quiet in the dark mines of the earth. As silly children cry because they are called to drink the medicine which will heal their sicknesses, even so do we. Our gracious Savior, however, loves us too wisely to spare us the trouble because of our childish fears. He foresees the advantage which will spring from our griefs and therefore thrusts us into them out of wisdom and true affection. It was a very great trouble to these first apostles to lose their teacher and friend. Sorrow had filled their heart at the thought that he should depart, yet his departure was to give them the greater blessing of the Holy Spirit, and therefore their entreaties and tears cannot avert the dreaded separation. Christ will not gratify their wishes at so vast an expense as the withholding of the Spirit. Mourn as they may under the severe trial, Jesus will not remain with them because his departure is advantageous to the highest degree. Beloved, let us expect to be subject to the same loving discipline. Let us count on losing happy circumstances and choice enjoyments when Jesus knows that the loss will be better for us than the enjoyment. God has given two great gifts to his people. The first is his son for us. The second is his spirit to us. After he had given his son for us to become incarnate, to work righteousness, and to offer an atonement, that gift had been fully bestowed and there remained no more to be conferred in that respect. It is finished, proclaimed the completion of atonement, and his resurrection showed the perfection of justification. It was not therefore necessary that Christ should remain any longer upon earth since his work below is forever finished. Now is the season for the second gift, the descent of the Holy Spirit. This could not be bestowed until Christ had ascended because this choice favor was reserved to grace with highest honor the triumphant ascension of the great Redeemer. The first gift being completed, it became necessary that he whose person and work make up that priceless blessing should withdraw himself that he might have power to distribute the second benefit 
by which alone the first gift becomes of any service to us. Christ crucified is of no practical value to us without the work of the Holy Spirit, and the atonement which Jesus worked can never save a single soul unless the blessed Spirit of God applies it to the heart and conscience. Jesus is never seen until the Holy Spirit opens the eye. The water from the well of life is never received until the Holy Spirit has drawn it from the depths as medicine unused for lack of the physician's word, as sweets untasted because they are out of reach, as treasure unvalued because it is hidden in the earth. Such is Jesus the Savior until the Holy Spirit teaches us to know him and applies his blood to our souls. It is to the honor of the Holy Spirit that I desire to speak this morning. And oh, may the same holy flame which of old rested upon the apostles now rest upon the preacher and may the word come with power to our hearts. We shall commence our discourse by the remark that the bodily presence of Christ must have been exceedingly precious. How precious? Only those who love Christ much can know. Love always desires to be in the company of the thing beloved, and absence causes grief. What is fully meant by the expression, sorrow has filled your heart, only those who anticipate a similar loss can know. Jesus had become the joy of their eyes, the sun of their days, the star of their nights. They were as little children, and now that their Lord and Master was going, they felt they should be left as orphans. Well might they have great sorrow of heart. So much love, so much sorrow when the object of love is withdrawn. Consider, my brothers and sisters, the joy which the bodily presence of Christ would give to us this morning, and then you can tell how precious it must be. Have we not, some of us, been looking for years for the personal advent of Christ? We have lifted up our eyes in the morning and we have said, perhaps he will come this day. And when the day has ended, we have continued our watching in our sleepless hours and renewed our hopes with the rising of the sun. We longingly expect him according to his promise. And like servants who watch for their Lord, we stand prepared, waiting for his appearing. We are looking forward to the day of the Lord. This is the bright hope which cheers the Christian, the hope that the Savior shall descend to reign among his people gloriously. Suppose he were to appear suddenly on this platform now. Oh, how you would clap your hands. Why, the lame among you at the joy of his appearance would leap like a deer, and even the mute might sing for joy. The presence of the master. What delight. Come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It must be a precious thing indeed to enjoy the physical presence of Christ. Think of the advantage it would be in the instruction of his people. No mysteries would puzzle us if we could refer all things to him. The disputes of the Christian church would soon be ended, for he would tell us what his word meant beyond dispute. There would be no discouragement to the church from this time on in her work of faith and labor of love, for the presence of Christ would be the end of all difficulties and ensure conquest over all enemies. 
we would not have to mourn as we now do over our forgetfulness of Jesus, for we would sometimes catch a glimpse of him, and a sight of him would give us such a store of joy that like the prophet of Horeb, we could go 40 days in the strength of that food. It would be a delightful thing to know that Christ was somewhere here upon the earth, for then he would take the personal supervision of his universal church. He could warn us of apostates. He could reject the hypocrites. He would comfort the feeble-minded and rebuke those who are in error. How delightful it would be to see him walking among the golden candlesticks, holding the stars in his right hand. Churches would not then need to be subdivided and split with evil passions. Christ would create unity. Schism would cease to be, and heresy would be rooted out. The two-edged sword of his mouth would slay his foes, and his eyes of fire would kindle the holy passions of his friends. But I shall not enlarge upon that point, because it is one in which imagination exercises itself at the expense of judgment. I question whether the pleasure which the thought of Christ's being here in the flesh has given us just now may not have had a leaven of carnality in it. I question whether the church is yet prepared to enjoy the physical presence of her Savior without falling into the error of knowing him after the flesh. It may be the church will need centuries of education before she is fit to see her Savior in the flesh on earth again, because I see in my own self, and I suppose it is so in you, that much of the delight which I expect from the company of Christ is according to the sight of the eyes, and sight is the mark and symbol of the flesh. However, leaving that point, we come to the second, which is that the presence of the Comforter, as we have it upon earth, is very much better than the bodily presence of Christ. We have imagined that the bodily presence of Christ would bestow innumerable blessings, but according to our text, the presence of the Holy Spirit working in the church is more advantageous for the church. I think this will be clear to you if you think for a moment that the bodily presence of Christ on the earth, however good it might be for the church, would in our present condition involve many inconveniences which are avoided by his presence through the Holy Spirit. Christ, being most truly man, must in his humanity inhabit a certain place. And in order to get to Christ, it would be necessary for us to travel to his place of residence. Conceive all men compelled to travel from the ends of the earth to visit the Lord Jesus Christ, dwelling upon Mount Zion or in the city of Jerusalem. What a lengthy voyage that would be for those who live in the far-off ends of the earth. Doubtless they would joyfully undertake it, and as peace would be universal and poverty banished, people might not be restrained from taking such a journey, and all might be able to accomplish it. Yet, as they could not all live where they could see Christ every morning, they must be content with every now and then getting a glimpse of him. But see, my brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit, the minister of Christ, dwells everywhere. And if we wish to seek the Holy Spirit, we have no need to move an inch. In the closet, we can find him. Or in the streets, we can talk with him. Jesus Christ could not be present in this congregation after the flesh and also present 
in a neighboring church, much less present in America and in Australia and in Europe and in Africa at the same time. But the Holy Spirit is everywhere. And through that Holy Spirit, Christ keeps his promise, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He could not keep that promise according to the flesh. At least, we are quite unable to conceive of his so doing. But through the Holy Spirit, we sweetly enjoy his presence and hope to do so to the world's end. Think again. Access to Christ, if he were here in his physical person, would not be very easy for all believers. There are only 24 hours in the day. And even if our Lord never slept, yet there are only 24 hours in a day. And what are 24 hours for the supervision of a church which we trust will cover the whole earth? How could hundreds of millions of believers all receive immediate personal comfort either from his lips or the smiles of his face? Even at the present moment, there are some millions of true saints upon the earth. What could one man do by his personal presence even if that one man was incarnate deity? What could he do in one day for the comfort of all these? Why, we could not possibly expect each one of us to see him every day. No, we could scarcely expect to have our turn once in a year. But beloved, we can now see Jesus every hour and every moment of every hour. As often as you bow the knee, his spirit who represents him can commune with you and bless you. No matter whether it be at the dead of night that your cry goes up or under the blaze of burning noon, there is the Spirit waiting to be gracious and your sighs and cries climb up to Christ in heaven and return with answers of peace. Perhaps these difficulties did not occur to you at first thought, but if you meditate a while, you will see that the presence of the Spirit avoiding that difficulty makes Christ accessible to every saint at all times, not to a few choice favorites, but to every believing man and woman, the Holy Spirit is accessible. And thus the whole body of the faithful can enjoy present and perpetual communion with Christ. Yet more, my brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ were still present with his church in the flesh, the life of faith, would not have such room for its display as it now has. The more there is visible to the eye, the less room for faith. The Roman Catholic Church, which has little enough of true faith, provides everything to work upon the senses. Your nostrils are regaled with incense and your ears are delighted with sweet sounds. The more faith grows, the less it needs outward helps. And when faith shows her true character and is clean divorced from sense and sight, then she needs absolutely nothing to rest upon but the invisible power of God. She has learned to hang as the world hangs upon no seen support. Just as the eternal arch of blue sky springs right up without props, so faith rests upon the invisible pillars of God's truth and faithfulness, needing nothing else to support her. The presence of Christ Jesus here in bodily flesh and the knowing of him according to the flesh would be to bring the saints back to a life of sight and in a measure spoil the simplicity of naked trust. You remember the Apostle Paul says, 
From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Yes, he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. To the skeptic who should ask us, why do you believe in Christ? If Jesus had remained upon the earth, we could always give an easy answer. There he is. There is the man. Behold him as he continues still to work miracles. There would be very little room for faith's holy adherence to the bare word of God and no opportunity for her to glorify God, trusting where she cannot trace. But now, beloved, the fact that we have nothing visible to point to, to which carnal minds can understand, this very fact makes the path of faith more truly congenial with its noble character. Faith, mighty faith, the promise sees and looks to that alone, which she could hardly do if she could look upon the visible person of a present Savior. Happy day it will be for us when faith enjoys the full fruition of her hopes in the triumphant advent of her Lord, but his absence alone can train and educate her to the needed point of spiritual refinement. Again, dear friends, the Holy Spirit is more valuable to the church in her present militant state than the presence of Christ could be conceived to be because Christ must be here in one of two ways. Either he must be here suffering or not suffering. If Christ were here suffering, then how could we conclude that his atonement was finished? Is it not much better for our faith that our blessed Lord, having once for all made a single sacrifice for sin, would sit at the right hand of the Father? Is it not much better, I ask, than to see him still struggling and suffering here below? Oh, but you say, perhaps he would not suffer. Then I tell you, do not wish to have him here until our warfare is accomplished. For to see an unsuffering Christ in the midst of his suffering people, to see his face calm and clear when yours and mine are wrinkled with grief, to see him smiling when we are weeping, this would be intolerable. No, it could not be. Brothers and sisters, if he were a suffering Christ in our sight, then we should suspect that he had not finished his work. And on the other hand, if he were an unsuffering Christ, then it would look as if he were not a merciful and faithful high priest, made like his brothers in every respect. These two difficulties throw us into a state of thankfulness to God that we do not have to answer the dilemma, but that the Spirit of God, who is Christ present on earth, relieves us from these difficulties and gives us all the advantage we could expect from Christ's presence in a tenfold degree. Only this one further remark, that the personal presence of Christ, as highly as we think of it, did not produce very great results in his disciples until the Spirit was poured forth from on high. Christ was their teacher. How much did they learn? Why, there is Philip. Christ has to say to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? They were puzzled by questions that little children can now answer. You can see that at the end of their three years course of training with Christ, they had only made slender progress. Christ is not only their teacher, but their comforter. 
yet how frequently Christ was not a comfort to them because of their unbelief. After he had uttered that delightful discourse, which we have been reading, he found them sleeping for sorrow. In this very chapter, when he is trying to comfort them, he adds, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Christ's objective was to foster the graces of his disciples, but where were their graces? There is Peter. He does not even have the grace of courage and consistency, but denies his master while the rest of them forsake him and run. There was not even the Spirit of Christ infused into them. Their zeal was not tempered with love, for they wanted fire from heaven to consume his adversaries, and Peter drew a sword to cut off the high priest's servant's ear. They scarcely knew the truths which their master taught, and they were far from absorbing his heavenly spirit. Even their endowments were slender. It is true they once worked miracles and preached, but with what success? Do you ever hear of Peter winning 3,000 sinners under a sermon until the Holy Spirit came? Do you find any of them able to edify others and build up the church of Christ? No, the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, considered only as to its immediate fruits, was not to be compared with ministries after the descent of the Spirit. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His great work as a Redeemer was a complete triumph from beginning to end. But as a teacher, since the Spirit of God was only upon him and not upon the people, his words were rejected, his entreaties were despised, and his warnings unheeded by the great multitude of the people. The mighty blessing came when the words of Joel were fulfilled. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That was the blessing. And a blessing which, we venture to say again, was so rich and so rare that it was indeed advantageous that Jesus Christ should go that the Holy Spirit might descend. I now pass on to the third point of the subject, with brevity. We have come thus far. The presence of Christ admitted to be precious, but the presence of the Holy Spirit most clearly shown to be of more practical value to the Church of God than the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Advance then to the third point. The presence of the Comforter is superlatively valuable. We may gather this first from the effects which were seen on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the heavenly wind sounded the alarm of war. The soldiers were ill-prepared for it. They were a small band, having only this virtue, that they were content to wait until power was given to them. They sat still in the upper room. That mighty sound was heard across Jerusalem. The forceful whirlwind travels on until it reaches the chosen spot. It fills the place where they are sitting. Here was a sign of what the Spirit of God is to be to the church. It is to come mysteriously upon the church according to the sovereign will of God. 
But when he comes, like the wind, it is to purge the moral atmosphere and to quicken the pulse of all who spiritually breathe. This is a blessing indeed, a blessing which the church greatly needs. I wish that this rushing mighty wind would come upon this church with an irresistible force that would carry everything with it, the force of truth, but of more than truth, the force of God driving truth home upon the heart and conscience of men. I desire that you and I could breathe this wind and receive its invigorating influence that we might be made champions of God and of his truth. Oh, that it would drive away our mists of doubt and clouds of error. Come, sacred wind. England needs you. The whole earth requires you. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We can do nothing without you, but if we have your wind, we spread our sail and speed onward toward glory. Then the Spirit came as fire. A fire shower accompanied the rushing mighty wind. What a blessing this is to the church. The church needs fire to give life to her ministers, to give zeal and energy to all her members. Having this fire, she burns her way to success. The world meets her with the fire of persecution, but she confronts the world with the fire of kindling spirits and of souls aglow with the love of Jesus Christ. She does not trust in the wit and eloquence and wisdom of her preachers, but to the divine fire which clothes them with energy. She knows that men are irresistible when they are filled with the holy enthusiasm sent from God. She trusts, therefore, in this, and her cry is, Come, holy fire, abide on our pastors and teachers, rest upon every one of us. This fire is a blessing Christ did not bring us in person, but which he now gives through his spirit to the church. Then there came from the fire shower a descent of tongues. And this too is the privilege of the church. When the Lord gave the apostles other tongues, he did, as it were, give them the keys of the various kingdoms. Go, he said, Judea is not my only dominion. Go and unlock the gates of every empire. Here are the keys. You can speak every language. Dear friends, though we can no longer speak with every man in his own tongue, yet we have the keys of the whole world in our possession. If we have the Spirit of God with us, you have the keys of human hearts if the Spirit of God speaks through you. I have this day the keys of the hearts of the multitudes here if the Holy Spirit wills to use them. There is an efficacy about the gospel when the Spirit is with us, little dreamed of by those who call it the foolishness of men. I am persuaded that the results which have followed ministry in our lifetime are trivial and insignificant compared with what they would be if the Spirit of God were more mightily at work in our midst. There is no reason in the nature of the gospel or the power of the Spirit why a whole congregation should not be converted under one sermon. There is no reason in God's nature why a nation should not be born in a day and why within a single 12 months a dozen ministers preaching throughout the world might not be the means of converting every elect son and daughter of Adam to a knowledge of the truth. 
The Spirit of God is perfectly irresistible when he puts forth his full power. His power is so divinely omnipotent that the moment he goes forth, the work is achieved. The great prophetic event we see occurred on the day of Pentecost. The success given was only the first fruits. Pentecost is not the harvest. We have been accustomed to look on Pentecost as a great and wonderful display of divine power, not at all to be equaled in modern times. Brothers and sisters, it is to be exceeded. I do not stand upon Pentecost as upon a towering mountain, wondering at my height, but I look at Pentecost as a little rising hill from which I am to look up to far loftier mountains. You must expect greater things, pray for greater things, long for greater things. Here is this England of ours, sunk in stolid ignorance of the gospel, weighing like a nightmare upon her heart. We have baptismal regeneration, supported by a horde of priests who either believe that dogma or hold their benefices by subscribing to a lie. How is this incubus to be shaken off of England? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. There is France, cursed with infidelity, fickle, merry, given up to pleasure. How is she to be made sober and sanctified unto God? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Then there is Germany, with her metaphysical skepticism, her half-Roman Catholicism, that is to say, Lutheranism, and her abounding papal system. How is she to arise? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Far away in Italy sits old Rome, the harlot of the seven hills, still reigning queen triumphant over the great part of the earth. How is she to die? Where is the sword which shall find its way to her heart? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The one thing, then, that we need is the Spirit of God. Do not say that we need money. We shall have it soon enough when the Spirit touches men's hearts. Do not say that we need buildings, chapels, edifices. All these may be good in themselves, but the main need of the church is the Spirit and men into whom the Spirit may be poured. If there were only one prayer which I might pray before I die, it would be this. Lord, send your church men filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Give to any denomination such men and its progress will be mighty. Keep back such men. Send them college gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire and grace, dogs which cannot bark, and soon that denomination will decline. Let the Spirit come, and the preacher may be rustic, simple, rough, unmannered, but with the Holy Spirit being upon him, none of his adversaries shall stand against him. His word shall come with the power to shake the gates of hell. Beloved, did I not speak the truth when I said that the Spirit of God is of superlative importance to the church? 
and that the day of Pentecost seems to tell us this. Remember, brothers and sisters, and here is another thought which should make the Spirit very dear to you, that without the Holy Spirit, no good thing ever did or ever can come into any of your hearts. No sigh of penitence, no cry of faith, no glance of love, no tear of holy sorrow. Your heart can never palpitate with life divine except through the Spirit. You are not capable of the smallest degree of spiritual emotion, much less spiritual action, apart from the Holy Spirit. You lie dead, living only for evil, but absolutely dead before God until the Holy Spirit comes and raises you from the grave. There is nothing good in you today, my brother, which was not put there. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Everything must come from Christ, and Christ gives nothing to men except through the Spirit of all grace. Prize the Spirit, then, as the channel of all good which comes into you. And further, no good thing can come out of you apart from the Spirit. Let it be in you, yet it lies dormant unless God works in you to will and to do for his own good pleasure. Do you desire to preach? How can you unless the Holy Spirit touches your tongue? Do you desire to pray? Alas, what dull work it is unless the Spirit makes intercession for you. Do you desire to subdue sin? Would you be holy? Would you imitate your master? Do you desire to rise to superlative heights of spirituality? Are you wanting to be made like the angels of God, full of zeal and fervor for the master's cause? You cannot without the Spirit. Without me, you can do nothing. O branch of the vine, you can have no fruit without the sap. O child of God, you have no life within you apart from the life which God gives you through his Spirit. Have I not said well, then, that the Holy Spirit is superlatively precious, so that even the presence of Christ after the flesh is not to be compared to his presence for glory and for power. This brings us to the conclusion, which is a practical point. Brothers and sisters, if these things be so, let us who are believers in Christ view the mysterious Spirit with deep awe, and reverence. Let us so reverence him as not to grieve him or provoke him to anger by our sin. Let us not quench him in one of his faintest motions in our soul. Let us foster every suggestion and be ready to obey every prompting. If the Holy Spirit is indeed so mighty, let us do nothing without him. Let us begin no project and carry on no enterprise and conclude no transaction without imploring his blessing. Let us do him the due homage of feeling our entire weakness apart from him and then depending upon him alone. You who are unconverted, let me implore you, whatever you do, never despise 
the Spirit of God. Remember, there is a special honor put upon him in Scripture. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Remember, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the sin that leads to death, of which even the loving John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. Tremble, therefore, in his presence. Remove your shoes from off your feet, for when his name is mentioned, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Let the Spirit be treated with reverence. In the next place, as a practical remark, let us, viewing the power of the Spirit, take courage today. We know, brothers and sisters, that we as a body of people, seeking to adhere closely to Scripture and to practice the ordinances and hold the doctrines as we have received them from the Lord Himself, are poor and despised. And when we look at the great ones of the earth, we see them on the side of the false and not of the true. Where are the kings and the nobles? Where are the princes? And where are the mighty men? Are they not against the Lord of hosts? Where is the gold? Where is the silver? Where is the architecture? Where is the wisdom? Where is the eloquence? Is it not banded together against the Lord of hosts? What then? Shall we be discouraged? Our fathers were not. They bore the testimony in the stocks and in prison, but they did not fear to advance the good old cause. As John Bunyan, they learned to rot in dungeons, but they did not learn how to play the coward. They suffered, and they testified that they were not discouraged. Why? Because they knew that the Spirit of God is mighty, and will prevail. Better to have a small church of poor men and the Spirit of God with them than to have a hierarchy of nobles, to have an army of titled princes without the Holy Spirit. For this is not merely the sinew of strength, but it is strength itself. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom and power. Have courage then, brothers and sisters, We only have to seek for that which God has promised to give, and we can do wonders. He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Wake up, members of this church, to earnest prayer, and all believers throughout the world, cry aloud unto God and let His bare arm be seen. Wake up, children of God, for you know the power of prayer. Give the covenant angel no rest until he speak the word and the spirit works mightily among the sons of men. Prayer is work that is suitable to each of you who are in Christ. Perhaps you cannot preach and you cannot teach, but you can pray and your private prayer unknown by men shall be registered in heaven. Those silent but earnest cries of yours shall bring down a blessing. The other morning when we were holding special prayer, there were some brothers present who kept saying during the prayer to themselves, scarcely loud enough to be heard, Do, Lord, do, grant it, hear it. This is the kind of praying which I love in prayer meetings. 
I do not care for the loud shouts of some of our Methodist brothers, though if they like, they are welcome to it. But I do like to hear friends praying with groanings too deep for words. Lord, send the Spirit. Send the Spirit. Lord, work, work, work. During sermon time, it is what numbers of churches should be doing, crying out to God in their hearts. As you walk the streets, when you see sin, you should pray, Lord, by your Spirit, bring it to an end. And when you notice a struggling brother striving to do good, you should cry, Lord, help him, help him by your spirit. I am persuaded we only need more prayer and there is no limit to the blessing. You may evangelize England. You may evangelize Europe. You may Christianize the world. If you only know how to pray, prayer can get anything of God. Prayer can get everything God denies nothing to the person who knows how to ask. The Lord never shuts his storehouse until you shut your mouth. God will never stop his arm until you stop your tongue. Cry aloud and give him no rest until he sends forth his spirit once again to stir the waters and to hover over this dark world until life and light shall come. Cry day and night, O you elect of God, for he will avenge you speedily. The time of battle draws near. Rome sharpens her sword for the fight. The men of error gnash their teeth in rage. Now for the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now for the might and majesty of the ancient of days. Now for the shaking of the walls of Jericho, even though we have no better weapons than ram's horns. Now for the coming of the Holy Spirit with such might and power that as Noah's flood covered the mountaintops, Jehovah's flood of glory shall cover the highest summits of sin and iniquity. And throughout the whole world, the Lord God omnipotent shall reign. You who do not have the Spirit, pray for it. May he prompt you to pray this morning. Unconverted sinners, May the Spirit give you faith. Remember that the Holy Spirit tells you to trust Christ. If you honor the Holy Spirit, trust Christ. I know you must be regenerate, but the person who trusts Christ is regenerate. You must repent. You must be holy. But the man who trusts Christ shall repent and shall be made holy. The seeds of repentance and holiness are in him already. Trust Christ, sinner. It is the Holy Spirit's mandate to you this morning. May he compel you to trust him, and he shall have the glory, world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter the content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons to both save those who are lost and impassion His people for His glory. 